We come this morning to our sermon passage, and this morning we're looking at the very last chapter of Scripture, Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. But to introduce a little bit, I mentioned this the last few weeks, to find the grace of Jesus, to come to faith in Him, is to enter into a different story. It's to enter into a different story about who God is, about who we are. And that's the true story of the gospel, the gospel of Jesus, which is very distinct, this gospel, this good news and announcement. It's distinct from what we'll get from every other religion in this world. We'll get good advice. We'll get a list of things to do. Here, you do these things and then you'll be whole. You do these things and then you'll be complete. But what we get from Jesus is the announcement, not of a a list of things to do, but what he has done. He tells us that in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God has brought forgiveness, transformation, and hope into our world. And that changes everything. It flips everything upside down. And we respond to the announcement of this victory accomplished for us. That's the new uh, story that we enter into. And because of what Jesus has done, God makes a number of promises to us, and we've walked through these the last three weeks. That in our world uh, where we are measured and judged constantly, in our minds, the way we think God judges us, we're judged by others, we're judged by ourselves, He gives us the promise of a new record. That when we come to Jesus by faith, we are forgiven and gifted the righteousness of Jesus by faith. And so now we stand as people who are justified before God and before man, and we don't have anything to prove. We don't have any love to earn because it's ours. We talked about how the gospel gives us the promise of a new heart, that when we come to Jesus by faith, we are transformed and renewed, and we are given a new place of motivation and a new uh, gas in our engine. Not to try to prove, again, anything to anybody, from a sense of shame or guilt or whatever it may be, but we rest in all things on the love of God for us. That becomes our motivation, our way to thrive. And last week we talked about the promise of a new community in our world of broken relationships, in this world of competition and disdain where we are more likely to see people as things to be used to advance down some career path or whatever, that we're brought into a new community where the gospel promises of a new record and a new heart are proven, the tangible reality, the place where we do not look at each other as resumes or as rap sheets. We do not look at each other as 401k balances. We do not look at each other as GPAs. But we see each other. We value each other. We know each other because the gospel is true. Well, this morning, I want to look at where this whole story goes. Because there's another gospel promise that Jesus has for us, and it's the promise of a new world. That God is making all things new, and He will not stop, He will not rest until His grace flows as far as the curse of sin is found in our world. That's what we're talking about this this morning, the promise of a new world. But before we get into the glories of this promise, we kind of have to understand the tragedy. We kind of have to understand the darkness before we can see the glory and the glimmer of the light. When God made all things in the very beginning, you can flip back to Genesis 1 and 2. 
He made all things as a theater for his glory. He created this world not broken, not marred by sin. He created this world as a theater for his glory. And he created humankind in his image, meant to reflect him, to copy him to one another. And Genesis 2 shows us he put the first human beings, Adam and Eve, in a beautiful garden. People have called it a paradise. It's a place of abundance where there was no worries about where the next meal was coming from. There were no worries about safety and vulnerability. It was a place of abundance and rest. And he put them there and he gave them a mission. You've heard it before, to be fruitful and to multiply. But that doesn't mean just have a bunch of kids. I think that's what we think. You ever be fruitful and multiply? Well, they're going to have a lot of kids. It didn't mean have kids to expand the number of images of God in this world. But it was also a command to expand that small speck of Eden as far as the earth existed. To build culture. To grow out. To work that garden. To cause it to expand until the glory of God covered this world like the waters cover the sea. Eden was meant to expand. And we were meant to copy God as builders, as shapers. Now it goes without saying that this is not the story of humanity. It's not my story. It's not yours either. Instead of this world becoming a theater for God's glory, it's become a theater for violence, for sin, for misery. I know that sounds incredibly depressing because it is. Now, there's still profound joy here. We know love here. We know joy. We know good things here. But even our best things, even our best experiences are marred by sin and by the effects of sin. Why? Because from the beginning of humanity's story, we're caught in this cycle of sin. It started with Adam and Eve, but it did not end there. Their rebellion was like Chernobyl. Um, if you know anything about Chernobyl, it was this nuclear plant in modern-day Ukraine that exploded. And in the moment of the explosion, it only impacted a handful of people. There weren't actually that many injuries from the explosion. But the radiation that poured out from Chernobyl has poisoned that place to today. You can't eat the vegetation. Nothing can live there, not, healthful, and not in a healthy way. That's exactly what happened. Adam and Eve, they ate a piece of fruit. But it was a poison that spilled out and hit everything. And in doing that, it was like the vital link between the life-giving God and His creation dependent on Him was stopped. It was like I was trying to garden, I was trying to uh, water our garden the other night and I couldn't figure out why it stopped and I looked behind me and Declan had the hose and he kinked it and oh, he was laughing at me. You know, a little trickle of water might still come out, but that flow that's supposed to happen does not. Well, that's what happened with sin. We are supposed to live in communion with God and the life-giving God flows out to us. But sin is like a kink in the hose. There may be dribbles still coming out, but something has to um, be fixed here. And from that rebellion and corruption has come the brokenness of our world. I promise I'm going to get the good news eventually. We're alienated from God. We're alienated from others. We're alienated from the creation we live in. We're alienated from ourselves. 
From that disconnect flows disease, war, oppression, death, brokenness, and curse, poverty, and greed. I could keep going, but I don't want to start crying. Our world is broken, and we are broken, not just spiritually, but physically. But the good news is that brokenness is not the end of the story. The brokenness is not the end of the story. The destruction of sin, the injustice of our world, the darkness and wrong of our world will not go unaddressed forever. So now, let's read from Revelation 22, 1 through 5. If you need it, it's printed for you in your bulletin. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that in this darkness, in this brokenness of our world, you give us the good news of the gospel. Not just forgiveness of sins. Not just a new heart to renew us. Not just to hold on, I'm going to burn this world and I'll, I'll catch you away and we'll fly away one day. But that you will remake and renew your creation. I pray as we attend to this gospel promise, work on our hearts, Lord to make it more than an announcement, to make it a cherished thing, a future hope that impacts our present. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now I'll say it so you don't have to. The book of Revelation is weird. If you've ever picked it up and tried to read it, it's strange. I know it sounds weird for a preacher to say the Bible's weird, but if you read it, there's a dragon. There's a beast that comes out of the sea. There's mountains crumbling and there's the, the sky literally rolling up like a scroll. There's a lamb that was slain but is alive again and sitting on a throne. There's angels pouring out bowls and blowing trumpets. It's like a mix of science fiction and Lord of the Rings and some fairy tales thrown in. So what in the world is going on in Revelation? What is happening? You know, I think a lot of us uh, in, in the Christian world, we treat Revelation like it's this code book. And if we can crack the code, we can do the math just right. We can figure out like, who the Antichrist is. And I mean, just in my lifetime, the Antichrist has been everybody from Ronald Reagan to Barack Obama to um, Saddam Hussein. And I could keep listing. It's been, and they'll show you the math. Oh, I did the math and his name adds up. to see. Anyway, that's not what Revelation is. It wasn't written in the first century and has meant nothing to the 20 centuries that have come between. Anyway, the book of Revelation is exactly what it says. It's a revelation. It's an unveiling. It's like God pulling the curtain back and we see images that are almost beyond our capacity to understand. And what he's showing us is not just a future. He's showing us the reality of right now. And it means to us what it meant to the people who received it in the first place. That even though it may not look like it sometimes, that, that, that Jesus who was crucified and died and was buried has risen from the dead victorious and right now reigns over His church and has not finished His work. 
That he's reigning over the kingdom of God right now. He is bending the wrongs and the injustices of this world toward his purpose. And he will not stop until the power of sin and its effects have been broken completely and the curse of sin is healed. He will not stop until all things are made new. Or even in the words of Revelation 12, he will not stop until the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. Now in our passage today, that's shown in a couple of different pictures, and you saw them as we read through it. They're all deeply rooted in the Old Testament. We see a river flowing with life. This goes to a, way back to a, 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 um, a vision that the prophet Ezekiel had. Jerusalem in the time of Ezekiel had been destroyed. And what he sees is a new temple, this massive temple. It's beyond scale that he can imagine. And flowing from the temple is a river that flows out from Jerusalem into the Dead Sea. Now, I don't know if you know anything about the Dead Sea, but it's the saltiest place on earth. Nothing can live there. And in Ezekiel's vision, what he sees is this river flowing from the throne, in the, or the symbolic throne of God in the temple, down into the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea is teeming with life. The water from the, this uh, river makes this salt sea sweet. It's this incredible vision for him. What we have here in Revelation 22 is completion of that vision. We see a river not flowing from a temple because what Jesus is doing is not working to reestablish a symbolic temple. What he's doing is establishing in the new heavens and new earth a place where he will dwell with us, not just symbolically, but truly. Where the presence of God will permeate our existence in every way. And so what he sees here is this, this river of life flowing. He sees a tree of life bearing fruit for nourishment and for the healing of the nations. And I could keep going, but they all point to the same thing. That right here, this vision, there is fullness. There is ultimate healing. There is abundance. And not fleeting abundance. We know abundance in this life, but we mostly know abundance after it's gone. I think more often than not. But this is not fleeting abundance. It is abundance beyond abundance. It is a tree that bears fruit every month of the year. That's physically impossible. But it's a tree that bears fruit. For nourishment. It is a tree whose leaves are used for healing. Or to put it in verse 3 simply, no longer will there be any curse. No longer will there be any curse. I think it's helpful to think of salvation as having three tenses. Now, we talk about salvation in the church, but I think it's helpful for us to think of salvation as having a past tense, a present tense, and a future tense. Past tense is we are saved from sin's penalty. So Jesus wore the penalty for sin on his cross. There's no more wrath or condemnation for us. We have been saved from sin's penalty. It's not a question. It's taken care of. In the here and now, the present tense, we are being saved from sin's power. God is growing us, and we are more, sin's power is losing its grip over us. It's not our slave master. That domineering power has been broken and we are experiencing being renewed. We are being saved from sin's power. But the future, and what we're talking about this morning, is the future tense of where we will be saved even from sin's presence. Not just from its penalty and power, but from its very presence. 
And what we'll see is a world full of the glory of the life-giving God where we live the kinds of lives that we as human beings were designed to live. And all of this happens because God has worked definitively in Jesus. Jesus is our tree of life. To put it more specifically, the cross that Jesus hung upon bearing the weight of our sin is our tree of life. Flowing from that is the nourishment that we need. Flowing from that is the healing for the nations. And in the crucifixion of Jesus, God worked to overcome the power of sin in its uttermost. To punish sin by removing it from us and placing it on Him. And in His resurrection from the dead, He defeated even the power of death. Kicking a door out of the, uh, you know, (laughs) doorless tomb of death. And that resurrection was only the beginning. Because Jesus didn't just redeem the wrong, he took up the banner of being what humanity should have been in the first place. This is what the New Testament means when it speaks of Jesus being a second Adam. He's the new foundation, the new fountainhead for humanity. So in all the places that Adam failed, and we as Adam's progeny have failed time and time again, Jesus succeeded. And he becomes this life spring for us. He lived that perfect life, obedient to God. He resisted the pull of temptations. And he has succeeded where all of us has failed. So that he could bring what Adam could not bring. Adam just brought the curse that flowed out to the rest of humanity. Jesus brings the ultimate redemption here that we see in Revelation 22. Where creation was designed to lead to all along. Not just a garden. That garden was meant to become a city. The human story starts in a garden and it ends in a city that covers this world. A city where God dwells with his people. A city of healing and renewal and abundance. And it's a beautiful thing. We see uh, some aspects of this in verse 4. It talks about how we will see God's face. This is one of the longings that permeates the Old Testament. It's one of the most common references in the Old Testament. It's all through the Psalms, for instance. A longing to encounter God in the fullness of His glory and His beauty and His majesty. In Revelation 22, it says that this is our destination. And it's not just like us looking at Him and being like, great. It is us seeing God as who He is. And our hearts being so captured and awed. I don't know if you've ever seen like a beautiful landscape that's taken your breath away. Or a beautiful work of art that you can't get out of your mind that you looked at that thing. When we see God's face, when we see God's face, we will be awed and changed and never the same. We will be transformed. In fact, the guy who saw this vision in Revelation 22 is the same guy who wrote the Gospel of John. In 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. In 1st John 2, he spoke about this very thing. He said, Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. The picture here is that God's beauty and glory is so powerful that when we see it, we become like him. Right here in Revelation 22, the veil that has blocked this has been removed entirely. It's a beautiful thing. And then uh, it speaks strangely of God's name being on our foreheads. Now this is not 
Um, this is not us all having tattoos on our forehead, uh, you know, God's name. Don't do that in here and now either. Um, but it points back to something in the Old Testament. In the worship of the Old Testament, the name of God was written on the turban that the high priest would wear. So the high priest was the one representative for God. He represented God to the people and the people to God. And he had written on his head God's name on this turban that he would wear. And essentially what this is saying here is that that access that everybody has thought that the high priest, you know, he's the guy that has the access to God that belongs to all of us. That we have that status. We have that access we know him and can approach him directly. And in the final image in this passage, it speaks of there being no more night. No more night. The idea isn't that we'll never rest. I like sleep. I hope I can nap. In fact, one of the pictures, though, we find in Scripture is that what awaits us, the new heavens, new earth, is ultimate rest, an age of rest. But the idea here is that those dark nights of the soul are gone. The idea here, in an age where there wasn't electricity, when darkness of night was the most dangerous thing you could imagine, when you were most vulnerable, is gone. And that nothing can hinder our knowledge and our experience of His loving presence with us. And we will reign with Him, by grace, alongside Him. We're the black sheep of the family, and He's bringing us up to the throne to sit beside Him forever. We have a share in this kingdom that belongs to us by grace. Now I want to translate all of this to the here and now because this can kind of sound pie in the sky. This is all kind of poetic language that can be hard for us to get our minds around. But I want to spend the rest of the sermon talking about what this means for us in the here and now. What this means for us looking forward is that there will be a day when Dunn, North Carolina is not ravaged by drug abuse. It will happen. There will be a day when Dunn, North Carolina is not ravaged by broken homes and the long-term effects of white supremacy will not mark this place. There will be no fear of domestic abuse. There will be no children going to bed hungry. There will be no women covering up bruises on their face with makeup. It will be gone. There will be a day where the way that sin and selfishness wars within your heart will be over. That struggle that you can't seem to get past has an expiration date. There'll be a day when the tears that you've wept are wiped away by God's own hand. There will be a day when your human body will be raised, knit together by God and renewed. No disease, no illnesses, no more phone calls about bad diagnoses and odd prognosis. None of the stuff we struggle with now. Only only the joy of flourishing. Now I want you to stop and think on that for a minute. Friends, sometimes I am exhausted. Sometimes I am absolutely exhausted, and I know you are too. I'm tired of wrestling with my selfishness. I'm tired of the days when God feels distance. I'm tired of turning on the news and checking my phone, and there's another war, there's another school shooting. I'm sick of it. Yet another person I know has died. I'm exhausted. Now, it's the honor of my life to be a pastor. It really is. And to walk alongside people in their time of distress and sorrow. But seeing people I love suffer, I 
hate it. I hate it with the fire of a thousand suns. <laughs> Experiencing suffering myself, I'm tired of it. I want to see everything made new. I want to see me made new. I want to see you made new. I want to see all God's children home and gathered and safe. And the good news of Revelation 22, the good news of the gospel that is good news for the world, is that that is what God is at work doing, making all things new. And because this is our destination, because we know this is where it all goes, we can live right now in our lives propelled into mission and testify to that future reality by our actions in our lives here. Here's what I mean. When Jesus died and rose from the grave, his cross and his resurrection, it was like in 1944 when the Allied troops landed each on D-Day. You ask anybody who's a World War II expert or historian, when was the war decided? When was it sure that the Allied troops would defeat the Nazis? Well, when they made that beachhead at Normandy, it was game over. It was just a matter of time. That was a decisive blow, and the armies only needed to march to Berlin to topple the Nazi regime. But it took 11 months. The decisive blow had landed. The victory was sure and secure. But what happened after D-Day is that France needed to be freed. That there were villages that had to be set free. That there were concentration camps that needed to be emptied out as that Allied army was marching from France to Berlin. Friends, when Jesus died and rose from the grave, the decisive blow landed. And there is no question about where victory will lie. It lies with Jesus. The kingdom of darkness, the reality of sin, it will not last. It cannot last. The victory blow has landed. And where we live right now is in a reality where the victory is already, but the realization of the victory is not yet. And already, but not yet. And right now, we are on march behind King Jesus, and we are walking into lives in villages in a metaphorical sense to pronounce freedom. We are marking, walking into places like concentration camps, which are the darkest spots. And we are declaring that King Jesus has won. Lay down your arms and join him. We are declaring victory and freedom. So wherever God has placed us, that is our calling. And I think a big part of this calling is to not just consider it local. You know, we heard from Lindsay just a little while ago about her time in Belize. And part of what she was doing as she's laying tile and hammering nails and helping people out and making friends as she is declaring in her actions to herself, to the people of Belize, that what God has for them is renewal. There is a day when King Jesus will reign over Belize completely, when the diseases that rack the people there are healed, when the poverty that racks the society there is over, when that corruption is gone. And here and now are acts of compassion, our words of the gospel, the welcome we extend to people in Jesus' name. All of this is us waging peace in a world of war. 
So I want to invite you and me to hear the call of Jesus this morning to follow him in declaring this victory. To live as people of grace and conviction and mission, wherever God may call us, in big ways and small, to declare this good news of a new world. To end this morning, I want to end appropriately with the words of Scripture. A little earlier in Revelation, a chapter before, chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down, down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death or mourning or, mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Let's pray.